Dr. Dan Fremantle, introducing Dr. Lewis Thomas, will talk about physiological death. Dr. Lewis Thomas is president of the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, after being dean of the Yale University School of Medicine. Dr. Lewis Thomas's first book, Lives of a Cell, won the National Book Award, and he is a member of the National Academy of Sciences. Dr. Thomas, you got many very, very interesting ideas about the biological aspects of death. We are talking about death this month because, as, as um, T.S. Eliot said, April is the cruelest month. And um, we are hoping that you will tell us a little bit about biological death. Now, the first thing I want to know is this idea that you mentioned that death is a relatively late invention in biology. The first creatures didn't have to die. Tell about that. You have to take a rather long view of time uh, to accept this notion. Uh, by late, I mean uh, late in terms of some billions of years. Trillion years, perhaps. I mean, when yeah. well, well the, the, let's say the Earth uh, began uh, something like four billion years ago, and life uh, emerged on it uh, uh, perhaps a couple of billion years after its formation, and for the first billion odd years or hundreds of millions of years, the only forms of life were single cells uh, without nuclei, the kind of cells that we call uh, prokaryotes. And death was beyond their experience. Instead of dying, uh, they simply divided into two, uh, and then they divided into, into, into four, and then eight, and, and so forth, and uh, went on uh, in a uh, identical flesh uh, uh, for all practical purposes forever. Uh, in our time, that is in the time of multicellular organisms with nuclei, we've tended to delegate uh, immortality to our germ cells so that we have one representative cell that finally, uh, when the chips are down, is us for carrying uh, our individual life forward. And the rest of us uh, is simply obliged by that kind of an arrangement to uh, put up with, with death. And indeed, if that were not the case, uh, the Earth would long since uh, have become packed so tight with life that, uh, that uh, uh, life, be no uh, life would be impossible. Yes. But then you had uh, uh, this ex also extraordinary idea which uh, do explain that death, uh, that the, uh, death only came with sex which seems almost uh, validating the myth of the Garden of Eden. Something, I suppose, like that, although uh, uh, really quite far removed uh, from life at our level. This must have happened a very long time ago when sex cells themselves were invented and when, uh, when it became possible for cells to exchange genetic uh, information. information. And ever since that time, with increasing degrees of elaboration, uh, we have, uh, uh, as a price, I suppose, that we pay for, for, uh, for sex, uh, we have, as I said, we've been compelled to put up with dying. That's frightfully interesting philosophically, isn't it, as well as biologically. I mean, it seems... When you think of all the great myths that uh, in which this idea somehow is latent, 
very extraordinary that it should possibly be true. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> uh, it depends on how you look at it. It, 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 it could be interpreted as a, as, a, as a fair enough exchange. Trouble with dying uh, these days, I think, is that uh, most people take the view that there that there has to be something simply awful about it, and that it is uh, agonizing and painful, and and I think much of the reluctance. is based on this uh, misapprehension, as I see it, that death is, is in fact, uh, a painful and You and think and that the human being actually, when he, when he or she comes to their death, are generally ready for it, in the sense that they're, 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 uh, they accept it, or that it, it, isn't, uh, it, it isn't what they feared? I think uh, I think the latter. It is certainly ready or not. It is it is it is it is almost certainly not what people have have uh, have feared for, uh, as I say, in the Western world for a very long time. And every now and then you get anecdotes, uh, but reliable ones that suggest that this is that this is true. First one I'm. Uh, that I'm aware of is is um, a long and fascinating anecdote uh, written by Montaigne, who came very close to dying by his own account uh, when he was involved in a in a very serious accident uh, uh, involving horses and carriages and a lot of trauma, and he was carted off, thought to be dead, uh, and. Uh, remembers uh, in his essay, which is somewhere in the middle of, of the frame translation, uh, everything that happened to him uh, remembers that, uh, that the people around him thought he was dying, remembers that he thought he was probably dying, there was blood all over the place, and he was unable to speak. But all that he recalled from that experience was the most extraordinary tranquility. Uh, He's never, he says, uh, felt as much at peace as he did during that longish period, hours were, were involved in it, before he finally uh, made the turn and, 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 uh, and didn't die. Uh, Do you think we'd have such luck? Well, uh, another one was, was uh, Sir David uh, Livingstone, the explorer. Dr. Livingstone, I presume. That Dr. Livingstone. <laughs> uh, uh, he, uh, in his memoirs, tells about having been set upon by a wounded lion and bitten clear through across the right chest, enough to break his arm at the shoulder joint. Uh, and the lion held him uh, and was about to kill him all the way uh, when, uh, when, by a lucky uh, uh, shot, the lion was killed. Uh, he remembers very clearly being in the lion's mouth with the lion having pierced his chest and wrote at some length about this because it was such an uh, it was almost a pleasant experience uh, he has never had quite the same feeling of tranquility he said and he suggested then that that uh, uh, benevolent nature must have designed a mechanism uh, for all kinds of creatures so that living uh, so that dying would not be the painful process that otherwise it would have to be. Do you and think the there's some kind of anesthetic in the brain that is released at the moment of death? Could be. Uh, 
in the last, just the last couple of years, it's been observed by a number of workers, one group in, in California and one at Hopkins, that there is in fact uh, a hormone-like substance secreted in the, uh, in, the, in the central part of the brain, uh, which has um, many of the properties of, of morphine, including its capacity to bind selectively to the same cells to which morphine itself is bound. And it's been suggested that that material might represent a sort of endogenous morphine, an, an analgesic that the brain can release uh, when it's necessary to do so uh, into the central nervous system. If, there, if, if, that's, if it is what it seems to be, then I would suggest that quite likely that kind of material is released at times of great trauma or at times of, 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 of the final illness, and it may be that there is, uh, there is that kind of straightforward pharmacologic explanation for, for the painlessness and the tranquility of, of dying. Because, uh, I mean, one's read so many accounts of the death agony, and the Victorians were full of it, and um, literature is full of it, and one wonders if the agony is more for the spectators, perhaps, than for the sufferer. Well, um, Sir William Osler, who probably knew more medicine at first hand than any, than any physician before or since his time, and who certainly saw in his time a great many people die, uh, wrote about this, and, and he was quite testy about it. He, uh, Osler uh, said on many occasions that there was simply no such thing as the death agony, that he he was quite certain that it did not exist, and that people should stop talking about it. How fascinating and how comforting, isn't it? Well, I would think so. Now, do you think there's a possible turning to, to learning to die? I mean, we learn, after all, a child learns to speak, and, and we all learn various uh, uh, skills. Do you think there's a way that, uh, in view of what you're saying, that we could learn uh, how to, to accept the fact uh, of our own mortality and, and be less uh, secretive and less um, complexy about it? I mean, all the complexes that you people used to have about sex now seem to be uh, concentrated on death, don't they? Well, people don't even like to talk about it very much. Yeah, it's not, uh, it's still not an acceptable topic for most conversations. I'm not sure that we could ever learn how to go about the business any more than we can learn how to go about the complicated physiological maneuvers that have to go be gone through in order to be born or in order to breathe or in order to have one's heartbeat. Um, I do think that perhaps we could uh, we could figure out ways better ways not to meddle with it. Uh, I, I have some apprehension that if there is such a thing as a physiologic process of dying, and if it is, as uh, I think the evidence suggests, a not bad experience to go through, and perhaps one with an enormous amount of meaning to it, uh, I think the more we can learn about that process, the better off 
Uh, we'll all be, but particularly, I think, physicians would do well to understand it uh, sooner or later. Because otherwise, I've, I'm, I'm fearful that by taking some of the steps that are, that are traditional in, in medicine to, uh, to, to, to fly into action at the last minute might possibly uh, be ways of interfering with, uh, with a process which otherwise uh, has been very carefully designed by nature and has been with us for a very long time indeed. Well, you say uh, that um, also that there's uh, a sequential programmed events in the physiolo physiology of dying. Augustine said that virtus est ordo amoris, that all virtue is the ordering of love. Could there be such a, an ordering for the physician and the patient and everybody else, a kind of ordering, uh, I think what you call a... a um, uh, an orderly way, a sequential way of, of proceeding with dying? I suspect that there may be, but we have, we have all there is to learn about it. Uh, I think we know, we know just about nothing at all about this process at the present time. Uh, if there is, and I suspect that there really is, uh, some kind of orderly sequence of events that occur in the process of dying. And after all, dying is a very complicated business. A great many things have to be arranged, so to speak, by a, a multicellular organism as complicated as, as we are. Uh, I, it would not surprise me to learn that this happens stepwise in some, uh, in some orderly fashion uh, and that there is uh, a stage in that process represented by what, uh, what Montaigne remembered from his experience and what uh, David Livingston remembered from his and what you hear now these days from time to time from patients who have died and then been brought back to life. Uh, this is a, an, a very interesting group of patients, people who have had sudden cardiac standstill and have fallen for all intents and purposes stone dead and been carried into a hospital and resuscitated. Some of these patients, not many, but some of these patients remember those events and their memories are always the same as those of Livingston and Montaigne. Montaigne. They cannot imagine why there is so much excitement around the stretcher on which they're being carried. They can't understand why everybody seems so upset at a time of such, uh, at such, of such, of such tranquility. Uh, well, I suspect that represents uh, uh, a certain stage in the process of, of, of dying, and and uh, it's uh, best left alone. I'd like to know more about it. Yes. Now, somebody like Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who's trying to teach people to die, I believe you probably have heard of her. Yes, indeed. And um, I've, I've met her and uh, admired her work very much. Um, isn't it true that, that it, it is possible, as we die all our lives, I mean, isn't it true that the, the cells in the brain are never replaced after one's about seven or eight years old, I believe? Isn't that right, that there are certain cells that, uh, that uh, when they go, they aren't replaced, I believe. Yeah, we're in the, we're, we are involved in, in, in a certain kind of dying uh, All from the time. the time we're born. Um, it's not really quite the same thing. It's more like 
Um, it's more like uh, perhaps a process of becoming more and more specialized uh, and and uh, adapted for for uh, for adult living. Uh, certainly, there's never a time right up until the time of death of such a holocaust as in embryonic life, when whole tissues are constructed with a, with the most elaborate kind of, of, of structure and function, and then at a certain stage uh, destroyed outright in order to make room for uh, another tissue or another organ to come in and, and take the place of the first. And I should think if, if I were, were an embryonic cell uh, involved in, in, in the morphogenesis of a fetus, I would think that life was full of disaster and that the world was coming to an end every, <laughs> every, every, every day because of this process. Uh, it is quite true that, that uh, certain kinds of cells, that all kinds of cells die, uh, and that process goes on through life. Uh, I'm grateful to know that in the case of the central nervous system, we start out with such enormous numbers in the trillions that we can well afford uh, the kind of deletion of the odd cell that Dr. Kubler-Ross was, was, yeah. was talking about. Uh, I'm not even, even sure that we're not somewhat the better for it. <laughs> Question of too much. Um, but uh, then, but the way we should, I mean, we're talking about the, the every one of us having to face this fact. And could, could there be, you think if people were more scientifically educated, I mean, the kind of things you've been telling me, uh, nobody's ever told me before. Could, could that, uh, I, I hope you're going to write about this so that we can all learn these things. I mean, I the ordinary I layman. I think, uh, yeah, I think this would be a, this is a good idea. I think everybody ought to know as much as is known today, but I think even more important to do is for those of us in the biological sciences to find out more about it. And there are, there are uh, uh, a great many things to be learned through research about this process, and, and it hasn't really had all that much attention from uh, biologists or medical scientists. People don't even know, for instance, why hair and, and nails go on growing long after a person's dead, well, do they? Uh, well, they, they, some of us know that it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen? No, I think it's a myth. Is uh, it? You know, there is some receding of tissues, and it looks, therefore, as though hair has grown or nails have grown, but... Uh, uh, this is not to say, though, that uh, af after death occurs, that life is uh, doesn't go on. There are there are some cells that do stay alive for for uh, as long as several days. Uh, some of the leukocytes in the blood are still active and agile uh, a day after death of everything else has occurred. Uh, the process of dying itself seems to be something more like uh, decentralization. Uh, some central governing mechanism has been shut off, and for a period of time uh, in, in multicellular organisms like ours, uh, there's something rather like, um, uh, rather like chaos. But there are some surviving cells that, that go on, and is indeed uh, one can recover cells from uh, animals 
uh, after death and grow them in tissue culture and keep them alive for very long periods of time. Where do you stand on the death being the death the when, the when the heart stops beating or when the brain stops functioning? Because there's a great argument about that now, isn't there? Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I, it's an argument that, I, that I'm not qualified to participate in. I'm puzzled by it. I think when the brain stops functioning, that's, that's it. the best definition of But dying. not when the heart does. No. No, no, no that's it. Well, we only have about one minute more, and I would love you to end with a, a bit of advice to us all, because it's something that you and I and all of us have to do. I think perhaps uh, what would you say was the most important thing uh, about facing physiological death? I think perhaps uh, not to be as fearful as all of us tend to be, and also perhaps to accept the fact that no matter what happens in science and no matter how much we learn, uh, this one fact of life is one we're going to have to live with and then ultimately die with. Thank you very much indeed, Dr. Lewis Thomas. And I do recommend everybody read His Lives of a Cell, published by Viking, which won the National Book Award and is a perfectly splendid book.